hi everyone welcome to zero ambitions podcast today sarah and i are joined by two wonderful guests um tara Ballade and marianne heaslip um now on this podcast we talk a lot about demand reduction and the urgency the need and scale with which we need to retrofit and how this work must be done as part of a just transition and it it really does need to be grounded in social justice now this is going to be one of many conversations where we explore how we can better include historically underrepresented voices, including those of women, and how all of our voices are really needed to tackle this huge challenge ahead. So we'll start off with some introductions from our guests. So Tara, I'll hand over to you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. I am Tara Ballade. I am a co-founder of Ballade Design Studio. We're an architectural practice based in London and we specialize in sustainable design. I know that's very broad, so I'll break that down. We specifically focus on environmental as well as socioeconomic sustainability, um, looking at all our projects. Um, I sit on a few um, design review panels in and around London, advising on um, sustainable development, um, and I am a co-founder of the Paradigm Network, which was created a few years ago to champion Black and Asian representation within the construction industry. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tara. Marianne, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am an associate principal at Urbet, um, which is a design cooperative, design and research cooperative in Manchester. Um, I'm working with Urbed over the last more than a decade. I've been specialising in, in retrofit. So back from starting with some of the technology strategy boards, uh, retrofit for the future work, um, a lot of that work alongside uh, an organisation called Carbon Clock, who are a kind of consumer householder-led um, co- another cooperative in Manchester. Um, and I've just recently started a new role as the technical lead on people powered retrofit which is a householder service that's a collaboration uh, began as a collaboration between those two organizations fantastic thanks very much and i think we'll get into a number of those topics slightly later but i think that we wanted to kick off with a bit of a discussion around the recent international women's day ah yes (laughs) my favorite topic um i uh, we had a little discussion before this today's podcast, and I also reflected on this on a, a LinkedIn post last week, where it feels to me a little bit of a an additional burden. Um, I think the notion that it's become this celebratory thing in the calendar, and it's like, yeah, happy International Women's Day. And it feels like, happy what? Isn't it a great failing that it exists in the first instance? So let's not turn this into something that it isn't um for me it feels and I think Rachel you were saying the same thing it feels like a burden it feels like other problems around representation and inclusion and um, women in the workplace let's ask them what they want to do to solve it I'm like could you just pay us please yeah I was just gonna start by asking you know for some reflections on how you feel about International Women's Day as as a movement, I suppose, or as a campaign? Uh, yeah, I have some similar, probably slightly icky feelings about it. Um, um, one of my more favourite things that came out of uh, the most recent one was the creation by some clever people of the gender pay gap 
booked on Twitter. I don't know if you oh, saw yeah. that. Yeah, that was the Future Architects front, I think. That was yeah. incredible. Just retweeting every corporate account that went, yeah, women, we're wonderful at dealing with women. Re- kind of quote tweeting it saying what the gender pay gap was at that organisation. Mm. Um, I think you're absolutely right. It should, the focus should be on uh how things affect our day-to-day life and what we're doing in our working practices to address these things rather than badges and kind of one day a year, Mm. Um, which I think probably Urbet probably did send out a tweet about it uh, because we're a majority uh, woman organisation, which we don't make a massive deal of that, but it I think it does affect the way that we work and the way that we view the world. Um, it is it is true, isn't it? I think that thing that you said about having to, like there's this almost pressure to participate. There's almost this thing to yeah. say like, it's almost like, well, I don't really want to, but I also want you to know that we're okay in this field. But also like that, it's becoming this like, I don't know what it's becoming. I don't know the, the point of it. And I think you absolutely landed on the best outcome of it was exactly that, to see, oh, you do, you wheeled out your women, but like you're paying them 20% less. Like, what's that about? Um, yeah. Um, I do think it's an interesting um, point, particularly when we bring up the gender pay gap, because I think for me, I'm a very, let me excuse the pun, I'm a very black and white numbers type of person. I'm very, very practical. And I think it's interesting that each year we have these types of conversations because we know like there, there are reports, there are studies, Mackenzie bring one every bring up one out every year that identifies literally the percentage of um, financial profit or profits that a company um, gets by ensuring that their leadership team, but all the way trickle down all the way through said company, um, the profitability of said company because of the diversity in that company. And I want to be clear because I think we use this word diversity um, quite loosely and definitely coming from a, um, a specific perspective. I was challenged recently by one of my colleagues Um, who said to me, Tara, when we speak about diversity, it means so many things to so many different people. And here I know we we centered and we started with International Women's Day, but certainly being a Black woman, I can't move in space any other way. So by default, I'm always thinking about race. And by default, of course, I'm thinking about gender as well. Um, And I know that's even limited, but this is my experience. And recognizing that even in reports like McKenzie's, we know that ethnic and gender diversity means there's an increased um, profitability of about 66% in a company. These are wild numbers. And I just don't understand how we're still having the conversation of, ah, how many women shall we have on our board? <laughs> or, um, you know, what, what does representation look like? Um, I think it's really important to understand that when we speak about diversity, I do think it's important to expand on what we mean by that. And I think it's important to call out the uh, clear, not actually even just advantages, but the clear disadvantages a company suffers for not being fully um diverse in in practice I think you're absolutely on it there as well Tara because it's it's almost like it's talked about as a nice to have or oh look we've got a few women around the place to decorate it (laughs) Um, and we can those women are the ones that always get sent to speak on panels because 
I actually had an experience. It was it was a long time ago now at a previous practice, but there was a panicked phone call to the office one Thursday afternoon uh, when I was working in Liverpool from a consultancy that we worked with going, have you got any women there? Because we've got some spare places for ladies day entry tomorrow and we need a woman. And I was like the like, you know, 26 year old part two. And they're like, you're a woman. You should go. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but that whole point of like, it's not, this shouldn't be about being nice, nice to have. It's right that, you know, it's, there's a justice thing about it, but there's also a business thing about it. Like if you want to do good work and run a successful business, this is part of it. Absolutely. So that, that's it, isn't it? I mean, this point that you've both raised, you know, what when you're forming a company, a practice, an enterprise, does success look like? And there's the work is done on that. The, the evidence bases are there. So well, the bit that frustrates me again is that we're at this again. We're having this conversation again. We're here again this year. Why, when the evidence is there, are we not acting on it and moving on it? And I think this sort of reflects a lot of um the same, the same sort of thing happens with all sorts of evidence bases that are provided. We have a lot of evidence bases in, you know, how to work sustainably, how to deliver lower carbon buildings, all of those sorts of things. There's so much information out there. And yet pushing against the tide is what we feel like we're always doing. It's sort of like, like the evidence is there. OK, let's move. You either move or you become subsumed by what was. So move with it and uh, develop it and 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 allow that to progress and stop fighting the change don't understand this fight fight against change when it's so evidence based that we need that change i think one of the facts that really struck re- home recently was that pre pandemic there was some study done that it was going to take 99 years to close the jam- gender pay gap post pandemic 140 years or something like that like don't quote me exactly on the numbers but like <laughs> And to my mind as well, I think I'd love to see that study and see what underpinned that, because it's obviously a projected route um, based on a certain behavioural path. And given what we've just said about evidence bases existing, you know what to do. Start paying. Start paying people for the job, not your men and your women. Start paying your people for the job that they are doing now. And why people don't do that is because of who they're going to upset if they don't do it, because of the privilege that people have to give up mm-hmm. in order to allow other people to be on a level. And the whole system there is, is really, really broken. So we really have got groups like Future Architects Front to thank to be call, calling that out. And they do call it out unashamedly. They will call it out and they will demand and they are getting changes. So I think like more power to 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 the gang there at Future Architecture Fund and and others. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a really infuriating one. But what are some of those boundaries beyond paying? What are some of those other boundaries that I mean, I guess we can just sit here and talk about our lived experiences, which is probably a good evidence base. But do you have reflections on what some of those barriers currently are in our industry as professionals? Wide open question. <laughs> Very unfair. <laughs> I think um, in terms of like the evidence behind the barriers, there, there's been some work done on that as well in more broadly in kind of cultural and creative industries. There's um, a book called Culture is Bad for You, which I'd really recommend everyone to have a read of. It was written by a, a 
someone I've known for a long time, a guy called uh, Dave O'Brien and Irene Brooke, and I forget the other author, which is terrible, but it's it's that great. And they've basically done a study of um, its race and gender and also class, which is, I think, something that we miss out on a lot because all of those things intersect and affect each other. And I think we're, we're bad at all of them in architecture and the built environment generally, and class is the one that doesn't get spoken about maybe as, as much. Um, but they've looked at some of those other barriers around like how people, when you go into a new space, what other people project onto you when you're in that, what their expectations are of you and how that kind of affects your response to it and how comfortable you feel in that place as well. Um, Tara, you... Marianne, I think that's just spot on. You just hit the nail on the head. Um, and I guess because we're talking about books, um, I'm going to have to bring up Rebel Ideas by Matthew Said because um, there there's the there's the concept, I mean, I'm sure he didn't coin this, but <laughs> concept of psychological safety, which is exactly what you're saying. And I think what's been fascinating, you know, bar, um, bar sort of evidence-based, but even in our experience of running practice and the types of people that we employ, what's been incredibly, um, and, and to be specific, because we're quite active in, or quite specific in, in, um, in ensuring that the team that we work with come from different um, class backgrounds, but also different ethnic backgrounds. Um, and what's really interesting there is watching the confidence of people grow and actually not just watching, but actually the safety um, for them to vocalize that, to say, do you know what, this is the first practice where I feel incredibly confident in who I am and the confidence that was stripped away from me in previous practice, I feel is being restored here. And it's 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 not necessarily something we set out to do. Um, it's just something that's happened as a result of the intent of being intentional about creating spaces where people feel safe in effect. Um, and I can say this from my own experience working in, um, you know, in big practice with not very many, well, nobody who looked like me. Um, and I, I understand to a degree, yes, you know, trying to find the right team, ETC, but we know that it's not for lack of talent or we know that it's not because for lack of um, people <laughs> who are looking for jobs either. Um, but the need to try and mold myself to other people's expectations or being brought in like the the great example you gave of oh well we need a woman in this space and so suddenly you're a woman in this space and now you have to say something that a woman should say or could say or is this in line <laughs> with representation of my entire gender it's extraordinary isn't it it's is extraordinary <laughs> I have to, on that example of Ladies' Day, I turned up there in my Doc Martins <laughs> with my legs. I was not what they were expecting. Oh. It's, what you said there, though, Tara, has really like hit a nerve for me, actually, because I think I think I'm quite naive in that I am not very good at recognizing when these sorts of things happen. But I had an experience, you know, at a previous practice where because of the nature of the situation I think I found over time I'd made myself smaller and um uh, and almost acted less confident in order to be able to be in a position where um my life was more comfortable if I became less confident less confident it was easier for me to exist within the space and 
over time that chips away at your confidence and it wasn't until I went to my current practice and I finally felt like I could take a breath and breathe and I I wasn't aware of how like my confidence had been diminished and how small I had made myself until I was out of that situation and I think that's one of the big barriers is almost like having these conversations and talking to women, people of colour, people from different classes and saying that, you know, check in with yourself. Like, are you actually moulding yourself into a situation that you you shouldn't be? And is there a a better place or a better way of of being? Which is really difficult when you're inside it because you don't don't see it. I I think something as well that you said, Tara, like, really hit home and I've written it down here this restoration of confidence right so when we talk about you know what does diversity mean what does representation mean and you Tara gave an example of the fact that you know you've explained that your organization is important to you and it is it's imperative that your organization reflects the places and the societies that you want to live in that you want to be part of that, that reflect the society that you see as it should be and I think, I think what I've found myself asking recently when I've been asked to join panels of things or working groups for stuff like that, and they are talking about representation, my first question to them is, who is your board? Like, does your organization reflect who you're asking? Because you're asking me here for free work. You're asking me for resource. And I get that because a lot of the work that we do at the minute is voluntary but I'm also interested to know, yeah, but who else is here and is involved in this? And are you building the team that reflects that? There's no point in having a board of 10 white men and one woman and then saying, yeah, but we, you know, we're just looking for people and we just can't find them. You're not looking hard enough because they exist. You just have to be willing to actually reassess what it is that you're trying to achieve with that. But being intentional about it, and this is the bit that I find really interesting, isn't enough to say, let's change the wording on our um, advertising for job roles. It's not just about that. It's about what you're going to do then when you change it, when your organization looks like you want it to look like, what are you going to do with that? And how are you going to actively manage that? And 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 yeah, to activate it, because you used, you used verbs, Tara, you're like, the restoration of confidence, like there's a thing that's happening and we're nurturing it and we're changing it. That's real change. That's real change when it's, it in of itself is changing things and it's building people's confidence. And then they realize the power that they have. That, that's, that is the exciting thing. This is what it should be about. Can we just have like that as International Women's Day last year? <laughs> Can that just be the thing? <laughs> Restoration of confidence for your people. That's all about. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I think th- there might be something as well about kind of in that, um, because pe- I, I found my confidence growing when I realised what power I had to make decisions, which is, you know, it's one of the nice things about being part of a cooperative as well as kind of the structure that enables that. But it's who and where decisions are made that are really important um, and how transparent some of those processes are as well. Because I'm sure you've been involved. I've been involved in projects where um, the decisions are all made on a Friday afternoon in the pub between set and it's like, it's all right, no, we, we don't need to, you know, fuss about this. We can just, we'll just go and have a pint with them and it'll sort it out. And like that, I mean, apart from anything else, that's not professional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many questions around that, isn't there? It's like, 
if you saw like you see the pictures from nipping at the moment and it just makes me feel slightly ill (laughs) yeah I can't um I cannot imagine begin to imagine what mipping must be like as an experience like yeah I was quite interested to go back to what you were saying um Marianne about um when you mentioned that actually at people powered retrofit you have um better representation of of women compared to a lot of places and also this decision making and how you know there's this sort of toxic example of making the decisions at pub time at 5 p.m once you know it's just a few sort of pale male stale guys left um I wonder if you've got like processes within those sorts of um groups that you've been part of including people powered retrofit where you um you know try and promote better diversity in in both recruitment but also in decision making um yeah so it's partly about culture and like the culture of the organization so you you can have i guess whatever governance rules you want but if the culture isn't there they'll they'll get ignored um and i think that culture partly comes from a, a few of us who kind of really believe these things are important um and we're in reasonably senior positions within those organizations so when you've got that i think that makes a big difference um and it just trying to be conscious and thoughtful about it and also learn from your mistakes because nobody gets it right all the time either and not be not be offended or precious about it because it's if you get something wrong and you've um kind of not considered someone's needs or where they're coming from uh in the right way it's not you that an injury has been done to um so it's it's not your old you just need to fix it to make sure that it doesn't happen again so I think taking that kind of attitude and approach um I mean I have been involved in like cooperatives for a long time and there are some things within cooperative governance structures that require a degree of transparency that kind of support this as well although I have to say cooperatives don't always get it right either in the, the kind of culture of the co-ops movement getting better at this and being more conscious of it um but yeah so I, I suppose there's there's no silver bullet in my experience you can't write a policy and say oh that's it that's done it's fixed it's it's like constant uh work thinking about it being conscious of it making sure that the culture operates yeah. i think that's really important when we think about you know the structures that are actually going to start delivering the retrofit that we talk about and I think one of the, th- the things that we've become frustrated is with is that we understand you know we just don't think the government are going to act quickly enough to mandate this from the top down and I think there's obviously a couple of streams and I think it's it's great having you both here because I think that you probably um, amongst all of us we cover quite a lot of the different types of ways that retrofit is going to happen um Tara probably more in the sort of um um with the householders themselves, people that can probably afford to pay, and then Marianne at maybe at that more community level. And I think that's sort of bottom-up, ground-up, community-driven approach is potentially the one that it feels like that could have the best possibility of also doing this in a just way that tackles like issues of fuel poverty, of providing like genuinely healthy homes for people to live in, trying to tackle inequality. And I, I'd be interested to sort of hear a bit about 
I mean, both your perspectives in terms of like how you engage with people who are going to carry out this work or who want to carry out this work and um, any sort of pitfalls that you found or any barriers within that sort of engagement. I think what's really interesting and what we're finding now certainly with a lot of the people we're working with is um, it, it's two way. Definitely. I think you're right in terms of this bottom up approach and as, um, as a practice, we, have made the decision that we are going to meet certain targets. So whether that be the RIBA 2030 or the LETI, so it doesn't really matter what the building regs say, because we know that, you know, <laughs> in terms of performance, they're nil and void. It really doesn't matter. We know that we know what's better and we really can't act in, um, in a way that continues to harm our planet, continues to harm the people who live um, on our planet. So um, people and plants and everything else <laughs> that, that gets um, our sources from our from our planet. So I think in terms of waiting for government, we know that we can't really afford that. And so it's a decision we've made. And it means also that the clients and the people who come to us come with that in mind. They already know that actually they have to be responding to sustainable retrofit, to sustainable building in a new way. And, and they care already, you know. So again, it's not waiting for the government to to come with sort of, uh, laws and rules and regulations, it's that they know already what is right for um, society. And therefore it's about finding the right team to help them get there. They might not necessarily know these are the targets that we're working towards, but they know that they want a more sustainable future. They want a kinder future. And that's fundamentally all that we need. When we have a client who has that uh, self-motivation, that's what's required. And I think what we're finding, which is really interesting, is this idea of um, is this idea that we are in a world where we're trying to solve complex problems and it's so critical that with complex problems we bring broader voices I'm going to go on about diversity again but we bring broader voices to the table so again yes the architect and the engineer and the professionals on one side but the clients themselves the community centers who have a completely different set of metrics that they're working um, against as well but with this overall goal and overall vision we recognize that for us to solve these complex problems we have to have these different ideas on the table and rebel ideas on the table, which means that even though people put forward sort of divergent ideas, unicorn ideas that might not come through, generally it moves the conversation along to where we would have ordinarily stayed or hovered. Um, so I think it, it's so important that we are able to um, engage properly with the people that we're working with. Yeah, I, I think I'd really echo that and um, a lot of the work that we do, both um, when we're working with owner-occupiers who are doing up their own house through people-powered retrofit or um, in some of the work with Carbon Corp that's about kind of community-led um, organisations getting involved in retrofit. We try and talk about being kind of person-centred or user-centred because I think there's too much that has gone on in retrofit in some of the, the top-down programs in the past where the retrofit is kind of done to people. Mm. It's like, hey, we're the experts. We've decided that these are the things your house needs. You just need to shut up and have this done to you uh, and like it. Um, and there's all kinds of problems with that um, that starts from the whole kind of engagement thing. It's like, first of all, you know, any building work is disruptive, so why would you let someone just kind of 
rip apart your house without you knowing what's going on. Um, right down to really basic things like a lot of the um, control systems that are designed for heating systems, they're just really bad. <laughs> they're just really poor. Like they haven't considered um, usability at all and they'll have these tiny display screens that aren't very well lit up and with tiny little fiddly buttons. So if you're a partially sighted person with arthritis, you, you can't use your heating control. Yeah. Um, and I think too often there's a bit of a tendency for um, the people who in the industry to say, oh, well, that's that's their problem. It's just they just don't understand it mm. and it's a problem of education or uh, like an information deficit problem. But I think we've been in this game for long enough to know that information deficit is near. It's, it's that things aren't being designed with people in mind. And I, th- I think in houses that becomes even more important because someone's home, mm. you know, that's their place of safety. That's the place that's hugely and emotionally important for them. And that needs to be a serious part of the conversation as well. It's not just like, oh, yeah, you stick that bit of insulation on that bit of brickwork. That's far too simplistic and we won't get anywhere if we keep taking that approach. I think there was a really interesting thing that Anika Kelly, who's your colleague um, at Carbon Cop, when she um, presented the, the the toolkit, the retro toolkit for all, I think it's called, um, and talks about the resident client. And I think that is a, a huge, just a really helpful. I mean, I think language really matters in the spirit where language really matters everywhere. How you talk about things is quite almost as important as what you're talking about. Um, and the fact that it is recognizing that, you know, we know retrofit's difficult. We know it's messy. We know it's all those things. Um, and then people are messy and difficult and we have to deal with them. And it's often the case where, Certainly, I know that um, maybe the the toolkit was talking more about for um, social housing landlords or um, that sort of context where it's a lot of money coming in and being done to a set of buildings. And therefore, the people are also being done to and not considered valuable in the process because, you know, you're getting it for free or whatever that is, which is really horrific thing to think about anyway to start with, that you could just feel like you can do stuff to people without considering the fact that, well, these are their homes. However, that tenure structure is organised. These are homes, and these are people who are actually fundamentally key to the success of this. This, this, um, this, the measures, the, the undertaking that happens. Because if you want it to be successful and you want it to stick, you have to be engaged, have to understand, have to be empowered, have to be centred to that. And we've heard then from lived examples of it where it has been successful. Um, you know that that has it has become good it has become great the people are on side they want it to work they're they're engaged and we have to put the funding behind some of that liaison role as well it's not enough to just say oh well we'll have a point of contact and somebody will tell them what's going on it's not that that's not enough I think well it comes back to what you we were saying about before with volunteer work and, and international women's day because invariably on the social housing schemes that I've worked on the site team are all fellas mm. and the tenant liaison officer is almost always a woman and that's treated that role is treated like oh no that's okay that's that's just that's soft skills as if it's somehow easier so this <laughs> is a really this is a really yeah. interesting segue right Rachel you brought this up earlier on and we were talking about okay 
we want to mobilize as broad a reach in the population to help deliver this huge, enormous task of retrofitting 29 million homes in the next eight years. <laughs> okay, that's that's what it is. So if we're going to do that, what are the sorts of roles that might be more available or readily um, suitable for particular groups in society without landing in what you've just pointed out, which is the, oh, there's a soft skill job here. That's got to be the women. Um, and we don't need to pay them very much either because it's not really quantifiable and it doesn't give us a bottom line on the spreadsheet kind of thing. So trying to like blast those preconceptions out of the water, what sort of, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to ask you, so what, what should women do and what should men do, but where are, where are those opportunities? I think like, how do we, how do we actually make and maybe maybe a way to come across this is actually to talk about training. Specific, let's get specific for a second about it. So we talk about training. We had Katrina Jordan on, as I was saying earlier, um, from Construction Scotland Innovation last week. And she was saying that um, they do have uh, women who come to their sort of apprenticeship programs asking about particular types of training and explicitly will say, but I am not comfortable being in an all male training facility or training like cohort. And that is something that people need to hear loud and clear. And there are lots of reasons why that's an uncomfortable place for women, let's say. I dread to even think how trans community feel in, in these sorts of spaces, if that's how you know we all know women feel about it. So what do we do to make those spaces accessible? And what do we do to, um, yeah, to basically open it up to more people, to let them try it first before we decide that's not for you? Like, how do we do that? And maybe you have some experience through the training types that you're looking at with people powered retrofit. I don't know. Yeah, um, a, a bit maybe. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because the, the approach that we've taken with people powered retrofit and the training we've done there is to be as close to the ground as possible. Um, which is partly a pragmatic thing around a lot of the firms that we'd be working with as part of that are kind of micro businesses so any time that they take away from doing a job is basically money lost mm. so you're trying to make it as as useful um and also the fact that quite a lot of people involved in in construction um maybe kind of left school at a point uh like didn't go the full academic route because they weren't totally comfortable with classroom learning for lots of different reasons as well. So you kind of trying to accommodate that. I think the way that we've worked is we've looked for um, working with organisations that have uh, more diverse leadership as well. So it kind of comes back to that anyway. Um, like some of the uh, contracting organisations around Manchester that do kind of refurbishment, maintenance and improvement work. So it's that kind of stuff. But that have uh, women as part of that and women who are keen to see more women in the industry as well. So you've got kind of that whole thing of representation so that people are like, all right, they're doing that. Maybe I can do that as well. But I have to say it's not the numbers are still tiny. I think it, it feels, it's a bit of a different context, I guess, in architecture, because although, um, so I 
graduated a while back, but when I graduated from architecture school, um, I think it was about 12% of registered architects were women, and we're now up to 20%, which is terrible. And from where I started, that it's like double, basically, from when I kind of started. So it feels like there's been kind of progress there. It's maybe not as weird as it once was to meet a woman who's an architect. Mm. Um, but it's still quite weird to mm. meet a plumber who's a woman or a plasterer. Or a... So we're starting from a really, really low base, which makes it hard again because of that representation thing. So there aren't necessarily. So I don't think we've solved it. But I think it's something that we're really keen to work on more. I really like what you said, Tara, about the fact that this is this is a really complex problem. And I think that there's this absolute tendency to strip the problem back down to its constituent parts and then really soon start talking about like how big are the radiators going to be and who's going to install the insulation and where does the DPC go and make it like super, super technical. And I think what we're sort of coming around to is that actually there's a lot more skills involved in delivering this because we're fundamentally talking about people's homes. And we've been talking a bit in ACAN about like these so-called soft skills. I'm not sure how I feel about the term, but people use it, right? But this idea of like, how do you bring people along with you? How do you engage people? Um, And last year I was... um, chairing one of the panels in the um, Built Environment Summit. And um, I, on the panel was um, Esther Abonio. And one thing that she said really stuck with me, which was, she was like, I was just talking to my brother, who is an author, about how do we communicate? Um, because if, if we learn from people who, for a job, are trying to get their stories across and their storytellers and their poets and people like this, then we can engage in a much more sort of deep and real way so I mean one of the things we're looking at in ACAN as a slight aside is um, how we can empower professionals with these sorts of skills to actually create deep and lasting connections between people and all these crises that we're facing and we're looking to run an event on this at the end of April where we'll have storytellers and poets coming along to sort of share that with architects because I think and other practitioners, because I think that we've sort of been told that we need to be, you know, we need to come at it from either a purely aesthetic angle or from a purely technical angle. But there's so many skills in between that are missing in that. And I don't know whether the two of you have got any thoughts in terms of like what skills are missing from this conversation and what skills we do need to develop in in this training. I think that's a really interesting question. And 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 actually, the fact that you mentioned this um idea of how we navigate the narrative and the storytelling elements is actually exactly what I thought of when we started this conversation. Um, It's this piece about communicating the business case for why, um, for the case of retrofit, because again, as professionals, we we know it and we understand it. Um, And actually the general public, no one understand, but actually there is this narrative piece that's missing in terms of the multiplicity of benefits that don't just stop a fuel poverty, but move into health and well-being and move into um, asset maintenance. There's so much um, involved in this process. Um, And another is leadership. You know, women bring, you know, I am biased, obviously, but women um, bring the the most brilliant leadership um, processes and strategies into play. And I think that's because of a real 
a real desire and a real ability to be advocates um, as well. So the leadership doesn't seem abstract. It, it just seems integral. Um, advocacy seems integral to um, a lot of um, leadership roles that um, women bring. So thinking of the Nobel laureate Wangari Matai through to um, even Kate Rayworth. And I think those, those two are quite important to look at as role models because they were able to move out of their normal professional sphere, if you like, as architects, as construction industry professionals, we're talking about them and they were able to break, say, the economist role and move beyond that. And I think it's something that we in our industry can learn a lot from. How often do you hear architects influencing the wider public? We're so good at talking to ourselves about ourselves with ourselves <laughs> and even our clients don't get what we're banging on about. So I think it's really important that we have to start to move between spaces. And I think there's a gap there that, that we have a real opportunity to um, navigate well. And even sort of you know, responding to your training question, I think training session one in terms of how you make women feel comfortable might might be just for for, for men only. Like <laughs> exactly <laughs> that. Exactly that. <laughs> it's funny because uh, Rachel and I co-host this podcast with four other men, and um, got a message from one of them today saying, "Is this one where the men should stay away from?" I said. Just this, just this conversation alone, because we've set it up, we just want to like have this conversation. However, there is no point in us having any of these conversations if you are not actually the ones having the conversations. Like we will identify, I will hand you the problems <laughs> and you guys can come and sort it. All right. There you go. <laughs> it's like any of the other things. And I don't want to take the tone down to a place where we're going to have to live through other parallel traumas but in the cases of anything like recently significant um say domestic violence incidents and things like that where we find ourselves again as women not able to occupy streets the streets that we're supposed to feel safe in and we can't and yet it's the women who are at the vigils and to me I also felt like a great burden when I didn't want to be out at the vigil and I sort of felt like isn't the message surely okay you go out and vigil, you go out and make it better, you go out and take away the, the problem, please, and make it better. So it's not just enough that it, it's, again, coming back to where do you put the responsibility for the change? It's not about, it should never, ever be about victim blaming. And it's very easy to bring things around to victim blaming because it's sort of like, well, that's where the thing happened. What did you do wrong that you brought this upon yourself? And it's not about that, actually. It's about all of us, all of us, recognizing that we all benefit as a society if we make those spaces more accessible more comfortable and safer for everybody to participate in because actually everybody wins and if I don't want to use that kind of competitive language because it's more about a collaboration and a thriving of communities so if we all do that the benefits are felt really widely and we can't even begin I mean the thing that makes me kind of quite hopeful about it all I don't think we can even begin to imagine quite how far the benefits of a really um like a really in-depth retrofit approach if you like can can bring I know we talk about retrofit because we're all professionals and technically involved in this but it is about those other multitude of, of benefits it is about comfort security being able to thrive being able to 
give back to the environment that you live in, being able to like have a job that's local, being able to choose how much you spend to, of your life working or training or doing those things. Like there's so much of that. There's so much, there's so much benefit to be felt to me. If you were going to even try and sell it to a politician, I feel like where are y'all asleep? Like this is a win for all of you, no matter which, like, I, I don't understand. I don't know. How do we explain to you that this is a really good thing? Like, what are you missing? <laughs> I, th- I think that comes back to what um, has been said before about narrative and about this, like the opportunity to bridge what is definitely a bit of a gap at the moment between kind of the, what are seen as fluffy social aspects and then the hardcore technical side of things. And it, even just that language is kind of difficult. Um, I mean, there's such power in telling people stories. And I think that's a lot of what uh, an architect's job can be. It, and there's also other parts of this where it's important. So um, when it comes to, say, handover documentation, which is always neglected and always right at the end of the thing and everyone just wants to finish and go home. And There's a huge difference between handing someone a booklet that takes the time and the care to explain things and set things in context and with graphics in it that are actually readable versus handing over. Here's the technical manual that was probably translated from German badly. Uh, good luck. <laughs> so yeah. that, all of those like storytelling things yeah. are really powerful and I think that's why when it comes to retrofit like open homestays are really powerful yeah. because you go to someone's house and they're telling you their story of what they've done experiencing it and um, the one thing that you've both mentioned and I'd love to circle back on is um when we talked about um doing race, gender and class badly in, in, in what we, um, in our, in our professional spheres, maybe, but we talked about the household being important, being powerful, um, but being historically vastly overlooked and undervalued. And I think I suspect precisely because, and this is touching on who you mentioned just now, Tara and Kate Rayworth, because I think those in power know the power of the household they know the strength that's there. Um, you know, who I think there's some stories told about some of these economists, these great economists of the 20th century or whatever, and not a mention of the fact that they were living at home with the mother who was feeding them and sending them off in their clean clothes and not having to think about how stuff gets done. Like, how did you get there? How are you there? You didn't just like materialize that morning. Like who, who brought that around? Who are the people making the decisions between heating and eating? Who are the people who know in a heartbeat what they can afford to make and feed the family and do those things um, all week? And I'm not explicitly saying that it's all women, but generally it is. Culturally, worldwide, it's a place that we have all talked down, you know, from, oh, I'm just a housewife. Oh, I'm just, you know, expected to do. See earlier notes on gender pay gap and how long it's going to take us to close it because of the pandemic, because who had to pick up those essential activities that have been undervalued so massive power in flipping that around and putting that front and center the opportunities there I think are magnificent to see how we can um reinvigorate our communities by bringing that forward um just to jump in there I think as well and I think 
potentially this is one of the reasons, Tara, why why one of your organisations is called Paradigm Shift is because, you know, we've talked about, we factually know that businesses benefit from more diversity, but why don't we see it? And I think part of it is because it's about the story and it's about the worldview. And we fundamentally need to create a paradigm shift where people actually believe that in their heads, because I think a lot of people who are running these businesses they don't actually believe it in them in their minds. And I think that this other sort of paradigm shift that we need is the fact that the household has been historically undervalued. It's not counted in GDP. It was seen as, you know, women's work. As Sarah said, you just magically arrive there, clean and <laughs> toilet trained and fed. And, you know, some of the stories of the men that have written the economic textbooks who are being fed by their mother full time, and they don't even make it into the mentions. And I think that this is the shift that we need, the fact that the idea that the home and the, the everything that goes on inside the home is valuable and needs to be counted as a fundamental part of what makes the society that we live in work. And I guess the question is, how do we how do we do that? How do we make this paradigm shift happen? I think this is good. This is good. The, the, you talk and you use the word value and that's the right word because the other word that's always bandied around in this sphere is cost. And it isn't really about cost because cost compared to what? And I think, Tara, you've written about this when you've been talking about passive house as an, as an approach to, to design. Um, yes, things. some of these things might be more expensive. More expensive compared to what, though? We're not trying to perpetuate the status quo where actually buildings are failing and not very good and very uncomfortable and full of all sorts of health issues and hazards and whatnot. So we're trying to do something better. And then there's this conversation about, yeah, but that's going to cost a bit more. Um, and we can't quantify, to use the other phrase, these fluffy benefits, the non-bottom line ones that aren't, you know, commercially, don't have a, a, a price tag attached to it. But actually, it is it, it, it is about the value. It is about, and it's, it's reassigning value across the board. So it's like saying, well, actually, my comfort is worth preserving or improving or, you know, doing something about. Um, and I don't know. I think you're right. It's about, like occupying those spheres of telling those stories that's important and making those and giving people skills to tell those stories and to make it personal and to have people understand the value and why you should care about it i'd like to give um a bit of a mention to an organization you know, are trying to do some of that stuff that we've we've worked with for a while so it's um home-baked community land trust in Amphil, oh, yeah. and that came out of it, it basically set up in response to what had happened in that area through the housing market renewal program, which was the absolute top down measure everything by the bottom line. Um, houses aren't worth enough in this area, so we're going to demolish a lot of them and build fewer back, and that will mean that houses are worth more. It's like, hang on, <laughs> the social implications of doing that to an entire neighborhood are just terrifying, for one thing. Um, and they weren't necessarily really considered. Um, but Homebaked kind of started, it started as an arts project. It was called Two Up, Two Down. It became part of the Liverpool Biennial where people were telling stories. Uh, there was kind of a theatre bus tour where you went around Anfield and people told you stories about their home. And people haven't seen the value in that. They've now got to the point they've got a really successful community bakery because uh, basically home and what you're going to eat mm. are part of their whole thing. And they, they talk all the time about what does it mean to live well? 
Mm. And a lot of this is about how, how do we all live well and, and everyone so that there's a justice to this as well. So it's not just the people who have the cash yeah. are able to live well. Um, and what's really, I suppose, a, what it's a demonstration of is Anfield's a pretty working class neighbourhood in Liverpool. Um, the people there, they care about this stuff. And we we had workshops on a Tuesday, wet Tuesday evening in the bakery there about heating systems and what different types of heating systems we might put in the terrace that we're refurbishing. And people care about fuel poverty, but also about climate because they care about, you know, what kind of future mm. people are going to have in that neighbourhood. Um, and it really mm. refutes some of the assumptions about, well, working class people don't care about this stuff. Mm. You know, this isn't important. It's like, no, everybody cares about living well. But the, the battle that they have faced all the way along is that houses in Anfield still aren't worth very much. So when you start looking at how much it costs to refurbish an average terrace house around there to make it so that the person in there isn't going to be in fuel poverty, then you're talking about, you know, it's, it's significant amounts of money. And because when we're talking about property, we're often valuing everything by the speculative property value it doesn't quite stack up on that front. So you're constantly having to justify it. But they've got really good at kind of telling those stories and convincing people that, no, this is valuable and we should do it this way because it is valuable. Mm. But it's a lot of hard work. So I, I kind of hope that they're pioneers and that other people go, oh, yeah, and kind of follow on. Um, well, it sounds like we need to speak to them. <laughs> I mean, I think that's um, something that we would like to do as well. If anybody listening who um, any of this is resonating with and wants to point out people like this who are doing this good work, then get in touch and, and let us know more. Because I think there's no point in us having a platform to not do the same thing, to not like amplify work that people are doing. And so like mentioning all these different sort of the, the books or what ACAN is doing or what People Powered Retrofit are up to or what Bilati Studio are doing is it's important for us to be able to share that good work out there because it is about all of those activities happening and, and all of us being able to learn from those and maybe replicate those things because they're good and they're successful and, and they spent all this time doing it and maybe we can partner up and, and, and help um, do more of that sort of collaborative um, work, I suppose. Um, or joy. It isn't just all work, is it? It's actually quite a lot of joy, quite a lot of, of good stuff. Yeah, apart from anything else at home, they're really good pies. <laughs> they have one of the best vegan scouts pie. <gasps> Amazing. Oh. Oh. I was only going to even back you up because like uh, I studied at Liverpool and like they're the best people in the world. They're like <laughs> so lovely. Amazing. So, um, so I, are we all gonna go up there and have a vegan scouts pie? Is that what I'm hearing? I think that's yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 that sounds like a plan. <laughs> I'm absolutely here for this. Oh, you know, this has been like a really uplifting discussion. One that I suppose at the beginning I had some trepidation because we're facing down some difficult topics that make people feel uncomfortable. But ultimately, it's absolutely full of opportunity, and you know, really everybody benefits. I think you've been really um, insightful and generous with your thoughts and your times. So thank you very much from from me, um, Rachel. Did you have any? Yeah. No. Thank you so much, both. I think that for me, this has been really uplifting, as Sarah said, but also 
I find that when we talk to women that we end up signposting to so many more amazing women as well. We're going to have to start like a little database of like everyone great that people suggest to look at. Um, and I'm sure we'll add lots more um, as we go along this journey. But it's been so great speaking to you both. I don't know if by either of you want to um, reflect on the conversation or if you had any sort of final thoughts. Um, I definitely just had um, some final thoughts and, and, and it's this to allow ourselves grace. I think we're in a culture where cancel culture is so like prevalent and I think it's okay for us to mis- make mistakes. I mean, you highlighted that earlier anyway. It's okay for us to make mistakes. It's okay for us to not know it all. But as long as we're open to learning, that's what matters the most. So I think it's important that we are just aware of our cancel culture and we give us ourselves um, and each other, I guess, the grace um, to learn.